Well, dear listener, thank you for uh, hmm. listening to the podcast while we were gone. Yeah. But we're back. We're back. We're back, baby. Back in action. 2021. Here we are. Oh, geez. I know, right? Can you believe it? Another year, another, whole... another beer. <laughs> Not on the premise. No, that's another podcast, Chad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so we're back. Yeah, it's 2021, and we have got a lot of exciting interviews planned for this year. And first of all, I'd like to mention, for those of you who know, the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. Gosh, I hope you know by now. I would think so. Right? I mean, unless, you, unless, of course, you skip at the beginning Possibly the middle and the end. Which is credits. entirely possible and I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, I've only worked hours, <laughs> well, minutes on that theme song. That's true. That, People that's, should listen to it. That's my you. blood, sweat, and tears right there. It's a really good theme song. You're good. <laughs> I, I love it. All right. All right. So, so, but here's the deal. We have our virtual event planned for 2021. Two days of programming. They're two weeks apart on July 17th and july 31st so check out the website at san diego writers festival.com there you go all right well we're so glad you're back i'm excited about this year we have a lot happening and today we are sharing an interview that we recorded for warwick's and as you know we work with warwick's in la jolla they are a local boutique bookstore we love to support local. Ooh, boutique even. Yeah, it's such a great bookstore. If you haven't gone in and checked it out, please do. If you're visiting San Diego, if you're out of, if you're from out of town, they just. Are if such you're a, from out of town, why are you traveling? Honestly, well, or that's your mask. True. Hey, it's COVID is <laughs> on its way out. Oh, hopefully. We're hoping. We're hoping. I saw some numbers went down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, everyone's getting vaccines except us. Everyone but us, because we never leave our house or this podcast room. Right. <laughs> this is what we do. We just sit here and podcast all day, every day for you, dear listener. So, yeah, I, we've got another one coming up here in a couple couple seconds. Uh, this is a Warwick's author, and I hope you'll sit back and enjoy it. And don't skip the ads. Don't skip the ads. I'm kidding. There are no ads. We only have like the outro. and. Well, our ads are good, though. It's Warwick's, you know, support local. Again, the San Diego Writers Festival, which, you know, the whole point of the premise is to bring industry leaders and book authors and publishing experts to you. So yeah, the ads are important. Yeah. San Diego Writers Festival.com. All right. Until next time, enjoy this interview. So I'm going to introduce Gregory real quick, and then we're going to dive in. Gregory Brown grew up along Penobscot Bay. His stories have appeared. I had to make sure I pronounce it correctly. You, you did it perfectly. <laughs> Which is shocking because I hadn't heard of it before, but it's a, it's a beautiful word. So, and I can't wait for people to learn all about this place and this incredible book, which I'm just in love with, The Lowering Days. Much, Jennifer. So, oh my gosh, such a pleasure to read this book. Your stories have appeared in Tin House, The Alaska Quarterly Review, Shenandoah, Epoch, and Narrative Magazine. A graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, he is the recipient of scholarships and fellowships from the McDowell Colony and the Breadloaf Writers Conference. He lives in Maine with his family, and The Lowering Days is your first novel. It is. It's my first book. Yes, absolutely. Congratulations. I mean... This book is like such a meditation on, on the natural world and it's so beautiful. And I just was like swept away and I 
can't wait to talk about it. But before we do that, would you like to usher our readers into this experience by reading a little bit of the book? I would love to. Um, yes. And thank you again for doing this and for, for being in conversation with me. And I can tell that you really savored the book and your reading experience. And I think that's, that's was always my intention to have it be a world you one went into and really slowly experienced. So um, yeah. I'm just going to read quickly from the beginning to kind of bring the audience into the world of the book here. Um, I'm going to start with a very short italicized passage that kind of begins the book and kind of sets as an incantation into the world. And then I'll move into chapter one and read, you know, a, a page and a half or two. Wonderful. There we go. What's the story of this place, this valley, this river, this bay? The story of this place? The story of this place is simple. The men take the women away and the sea takes the men away. But how do the men take the women away? Love, fists, knives, pregnancies, money, guns, words, love. How does the sea take the men away? Very, very easily. Just a little swoop of wind, the leap of a single mischievous wave. It's like taking a breath. That's all freedom ever is. The ability to breathe. Try it. Open your lips. Press your tongue down against your back teeth. Close your eyes. Yes, sugar just like that. Now take a breath. Make it small. Think of a newborn's lungs no bigger than a clementine. Now take that breath. You feel it? Of course you do. There's another man gone by the sea. And what does the land do through all this? It cries out for justice. One, we were wild kids, always covered in river dirt and sweat. In every corner of the house, one could see our passing. Ochre footprints slapped across floorboards, sand spilling from our beds, mud from our hands smeared along cabinets and door handles and the hulls of the miraculous boats our father built. With the windows thrown open in summer to the river and the calling of owls and coyotes and wood frogs, it sometimes felt like the line between the world inside and the world outside vanished. Perhaps that's why my brothers and I never questioned our parents' ability to summon each other back from short and great distances. It wasn't until I was grown that I realized this was unusual at all. Certain cultures believe a song or chant voiced in one place can be heard in another place many miles away. Passamaquoddy people talk of Motawolan, ones with extraordinary spiritual powers who can hear for great distances. All these years later, I am still convinced my parents carried some similar summoning magic. And while I don't have the language for such a thing, I know only this, love should always be able to call love back. That seemed simple enough to us as children. My name is David Alvern Ames. The other day I woke with a sudden need to make sense of old things before more new things came on. I guess this isn't so unusual. By giving myself permission to freely survey the lives I grew up among, moving from one household into another, much like the river that surrounded us, I'm hoping to stand in the flow of history without being crushed by its weight. I'm a doctor now, and while one might think I've seen enough absurdity to throw my hands up to time and chance, the secret curse of being a caregiver is the hunger for control. Every malady has a potential cure if you get to it soon enough. So it is that I've often thought about what could have been stopped had someone gotten between my father and Lyman Creel when I was a teenager. But I'm talking now of mystical things of surreal places and impossible tasks. 
To begin the right way, we must start with the Penobscot. The Penobscot River rises from the mountains and lakes of northern Maine and runs down the state like a spine. It shares its name with the Penobscot people, who were the current and original inhabitants of the river and ancestors of the waters. The Penobscot Nation, along with the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Passamaquoddy tribes were known collectively as the Wabanaki, the people of the Dawnland. For thousands of years, they'd been the first people here, until, as prophesied in the visions of elders, ships filled with white faces came from the east, sowing impossible sadness. It was in the east as well that healing was supposed to start. The Penobscots ran their nation from a mile-long island rooted in the river, and their ancestral territory included the entire watershed. The river, its waters, its banks, its islands, and Penobscot Bay, which, over time, had become my home family's home as well. I'll stop there. You have a lovely reading voice. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it was really fun to hear you read that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I credit a lot of that to reading out loud a lot to my daughter. So mm, We give her all the credit then. Yeah. <laughs> what is your daughter's name? Her name is Aloma, and I will pass the credit along to her because she always, at nine, she's always a fan of getting credit for just about anything. <laughs> well, we'll give her credit for many things, but probably not her own name. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a tricky one. Yeah. yeah. Although she's she in the pre-birth the world moon. or not, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the, your choice to let the narrator begin as an adult, was that always your choice? Did that come That's away? a great first question. Yeah. So that was not always my, my choice. What I, what I found initially, I had tried writing the book um, with several different sections of several different third person voices. And eventually mm. I settled on the fact that, you know, David or Almi was, was the principal narrator and that line about giving him permission to kind of move through the lives of his community gave me permission yeah. as a writer to let him kind of fold through all these other lives as this, this almost like first person omniscient like lens that sees and reports so much. So in order to, to do that, I quickly realized that I, I needed to have a retrospective narrator too. Um, you mm -hmm. know, I needed, I really wanted for him to be able to experience things as, you know, a teenager as he does in the book, but to be able to reflect on them with some of the wisdom and experience of adulthood. So Wonderful. that that, that kind of necessitated him looking back. Um, also, you know, where the book ends is a spot that causes reflection on the past. So even though it, it wasn't at, at first, he was, you know, a more immediate younger narrator, I pretty quickly realized that he needed like the lens of distance to fully tell the story. Mm, beautifully done. Absolutely. Um, I read that the lowering days, the, the story unfolded slowly for you. Can you talk about this process and how it all began? Yeah, I can. Um, so it, it took me about eight years total to write the book, maybe, maybe seven and a half. And before I wrote The Lowering Days, I had been writing short stories and I had been writing short stories about Seal Point, which is the fictional town that, that we go to in, in The Lowering Days. And I thought at the time I, I had written a whole linked collection about the town and I thought I was perhaps done with that place. At the time I was living in Iowa City and I just finished grad school and I came back to Maine to visit my, my dad um, with my daughter who was very young then and also to visit my mom. and. It, suddenly hit me that I, I still wanted to write about mid-coast Maine. 
Um, for, mm. for years, I had had this kind of vision of three brothers kicking around, and I wasn't sure what their story was. And I also had a vision of a, a couple that was trying to build like a sanctuary, um, kind of a place to bring their family up and protect them from the outside world in ways, mm. um, their own space carved out. And I was taking a, the story answer, I was taking a walk um, by the actual little river, which is not far from where I grew up one day. Hmm. And there's a peninsula that comes out into the river. And I just kind of saw a house on it that wasn't there. Hmm. I'm like, oh, that's Arno and Fallon's house. They're going to, they build a house out on a peninsula and a river to kind of make their own like spot for their life to start. So I had these little echoes of images that kind of came together and then it was you know, the slow process of excavating who who the characters are, who is this couple, who are these brothers, um, who are the other families in the book and what are the social and political issues that kind of shape their life. So yeah. that slow emergence along with my very, <laughs> took me a long time to figure out the structure of this book. So that all mm. led to the process of living with it for a long time and having it change in um, important ways over time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you compare it in an article that you wrote for LitHub, which we're going to put the link to this article mm. in, um, <clears throat> in the comments for Facebook people so you can go read it because it's a fantastic article. But in there, you talk about how, you know, nature evolves slowly. For us, it seems slow, um, but really like you, this is a meditation on your connection to the, to the natural world, is it not? Yeah, I, th I think that's fair. It is. Um, my connection and, and the, the connection of my characters, which obviously are, is coming through me, um, for sure. Uh, my, you know, the natural world informs my life and my practices in life very fully, and it informs my fiction, too. And did, was that anticipated? I mean, from the beginning that you started writing this seven and a half years ago, did you expect that the natural world would play such a huge part in this book? I mean, it's really a character in the book. It is a character. Thank you. And thank you for that close read of it. It, it, it is a character. And I knew it would play a big part. Um, I didn't know that it would rise kind of to the level of existing with the same, well, I hope the same level of aliveness as the human characters in the book. That I, I wasn't aware of when I started um, and ultimately, as my characters' lives became deeper and as the, the, you know, the story that unfolds, unfolds in the book um, became deeper and bigger, the natural world became more alive. And I loved that in that, you know, I was bringing to life both the human world, the natural world, and in ways like, you know, the animal world, you know, features prominently in the book. But Absolutely. I did know, like, yeah. for sure, that one of the things that's always interested me the most as a writer and interests me about a lot of the fiction that I love most is that interplay of, like, human lives and land. Um, mm -hmm. How yeah. sometimes that's about industry, sometimes that's about home, about safety, sometimes that's about, you know, interacting with the land in a way where you care for it and it cares for you, providing food, sustenance, healing, you know, um, all of those things that we, we take from, from being out among nature. So it kept getting bigger and I'm glad for that. I am too, because there's such a beautiful message in it. And I kept wondering, I mean, a lot of times when we have these overt messages to protect our environment, to be more in commune with our, our native world, it feels like it, there's a message there and we're supposed to get it. But I never got the sense that you were trying to convey a message. The message came through anyway. It was part of the story. It was, it, it, and I felt this about all of your characters. Like the, the, the community in and of itself 
you would slowly sort of unfold these characters who maybe had small parts, but they were all part of something bigger. Like I really got the sense that I was there. I could smell it. I could see it. I could feel it. And, you know, I, I thought that was very well done. I want to talk about the topics, the really important topics in this book, like environmental exploitation, the yeah. native lands, racism comes to play, the damage done by dams and, the, you know, the, along the waters. Um, when those things came to be, did, they, did, you, did you feel like they just sort of presented themselves, like you have to talk about this? Um, a little bit. They, they came, they were always concerns and they were always things I knew I wanted to talk about because that's the story of, you know, this is a fictional Maine, a Maine of imagination. Um, and there are, but there are very, very many factual things. And it's, it's very, very true in how it presents the landscape and the quality of the land and how people have interacted with the land and extracted and also used the land. So I knew to tell the story of, of, you know, mid-coast Maine, um, or Maine in general, and a lot of places in the Northeast, it had to be a story that, that included issues of environmentalism, conservationism, and land in general. Um, mm -hmm. So I knew that they were there. The question became, or the, 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 the challenge became figuring out how to come, have them come through the book in a non-like polemical way, which it sounds like that happened for you. You didn't feel preached at by the book, which was never exactly. you know, high intention. Yeah. So yeah. what I found was that, you know, and this is true, I think, of most communities that I grew up among and live among still, you know, people who are dependent on the land for support or for livelihood, um, issues of politics and, and land, you know, um, land-based politics come into the conversation pretty quickly. Like, you know, yeah. for someone like Lyman, who's a lobster fisherman, like the fishery and the issues that face the fishery and territories around who's fishing where, I mean, that's like dinner table conversation. I mean, that's yeah. the material of life. So it was very easy for me to bring those issues to the book through, through character. Um, and what I found was as I went deeper into exploring these characters, the issues that you know were most pertinent to them would, would arise more and that I could could explore them more deeply. Um, yeah. So it was always there, but like like many things in the book, it, it continued to deepen the longer I spent with the book. That's one of the things that you wrote in that article. Yeah. Was, you know, you're glad it took so long to write the book because mm -hmm. it continued to surprise you and evolve and deepen in ways that I'm sure you wanted, I mean, what writer doesn't want to have a deep thought provoking book, but, but, you know, it, it, you needed that time for it to marinate, so to speak, when you were vacuuming, for example. For, for sure. <laughs> Let's talk about Lyman. He's one of my favorite characters in the book. He, he's meant to be the villain in a lot of ways, right? right? He's our antagonist. And yet I, as I read, as I read the lowering days, such a great cover too. I want to show it again to Thank you. people Thank watching. You. I thought I, I really loved Lyman. Like I, I had a fondness for him that was like deeper than who he was on the surface. Yeah. I was never mad at him. I never wanted him to fail. I, I wanted him because I knew there was goodness in him. I knew there was a good Lyman in there. And I think you showed that, you know, with his relationship with these ravens that he yeah, feeds right. and who he is as a father. And, and, you know, I just, I felt sorry for him. I felt like he was, he was misunderstood. Um, and he had a, you know, a, he had a rough go of it, but yet by the same token, like he is the villain. And I wonder, did you struggle with like, you didn't want to make him too bad because did you love Lyman too? Like I did. 
Yeah, I I I did love Lyman and um, <laughs> Lyman. I loved him, and he was one of the most fun and easiest to write characters at times. But he was also one of the most challenging characters mm. to write. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, because there's. I think one of the hardest things to do is is to write like just a fundamentally decent person. Um, and Lyman isn't necessarily that, but I think at his core he is. So then I have a fundamentally decent person who partly because of the behaviors and choices of others in his community and partly because of, you know, his own rash decisions becomes a pariah. So we have this Mm -hmm. decent human being that we're working with. And then we have the antagonist, the, the evildoer, the community pariah. So they were two very different poles to be writing in with Lyman. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. Um, and he goes to some like really sweet and caretaking places. And he goes to some really dark, obsessive places um, and destructive places. And it was just, it was fun to kind of go down the psychological black hole that was Lyman's character at times. Yeah. Uh, and I always feel like with, with Lyman too, he is like the antagonist and he's kind of this black cloud that moves through the book. And what, what I always wanted to know and wanted people to be thinking about was, is, is he the dark cloud because of who he is, or is he the dark cloud because he's been made that by his community? Yes. Um, yes. The, um, just in for quick context for readers, there's the Ames family. That's, the, you know, the family of the narrator and his, he has two brothers and his father Arno is a boat builder and his mother Fallon runs a small town newspaper. The Creel family are the neighboring family and that's Lyman and his wife, Grace and Arno and Lyman are very similar in some ways um, and they are very different in other ways. And they kind of come into this conflict through one being held up by the community and forgiven and the other one kind of being maligned continually. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's, them for sure. Yeah. That's what sometimes happens in, in small towns, right. And in, in rural communities, totally. you can't mm-hmm. escape your past. You can't escape the, the bad things that you maybe haven't done, but people apply to you having done. So there's a lot of like heroic and good things Lyman does, but he, he is unable to kind of get the favor of his people. I love that his last name is Creel and he's oh, a that, yeah. uh, It wasn't lost on me. Uh, I wonder yeah. about the, <laughs> there's a lot of really fun names in this book. Ren was another one. I, I want to ask you, like, where did these names come from? I mean, we've got Lyman, we've got Arno, we've got Fallon, you know, Link. These are all like very interesting names. Can you tell us where? where they yeah, I can do my best. Yeah, they are. I've been I've been criticized before for my names being too odd or too interesting. But oh no, I love it. I it was I thought I, it was fantastic. Where I grew up, yeah, thank you. Where, where I grew up in, in um, you know in Belfast, Maine, which is in the mid coast area. Um, it is in you know Penobscot territory, and I, I still live in in Maine um, and to a little bit west of where I grew up, but it's still Wabanaki territory, and it's a place filled with odd names and interesting characters and. Um, you know, Arno's name is kind of drawing on French mythology a little bit and Fallon's name is drawing on, you know, Celtic or Gaelic mythology. And those are two Mm. cultural backgrounds that they have. Uh, Link was just Link. And I don't know where that came from. Um, just kind of like, yeah, I just had that name, the name just arrived. It was one of those moments where I was out walking the dogs and I'm like, okay, I have two of the brothers. What's, what's the third brother's name? Um, and, and. But wasn't he the Link? He. Yes. Yeah, he is the link. So they work <laughs> yeah. in this, kind of this very staccato name, very different, kind of tough sounding in some ways. Um, but he's mm-hmm. also the link. He's the middle. He's you know he's the middle brother, and he's yeah. the 
of all the brothers, he's the one who is kind of the watcher or the protector in the family. There's a, there's a scene early in the book where Almi, the narrator, talks about, you know, how his parents would go to the grocery store or the movies or go out or something. And Link would be at home just like waiting for them to come back and wondering yeah. if it's okay. He's, he's the hypervigilant middle brother. So he, he is actually a Link. Um, and Lyman, uh, somebody asked me recently if that was a nod to, to, you know, the Red Convertible, which is a beautiful Louise Erdrich story and, you know, one of my favorite stories. And I hadn't mm. thought of that at the time, but I, I do wonder if, if, if maybe Lyman subconsciously and in the subconscious a little bit. He's another um, complicated kind of antagonist who's not really an antagonist. Yeah, yeah. I want, I want to tell our readers there's, there's magic in this book. Mm so much beautiful magic. And I want, I want to talk about that, you know, in that article you wrote, I, I know I keep referencing it. It's such a good article. It's called the fires of Dis digression. Um, the slow burning of writing fiction or the slow burn rather. You refer to magical thinking in the article. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about, you know, a, a magical thinking is so part, important in this book, but also just as as people, I think it's part of how we heal. It allows us to go places that maybe we wouldn't travel in real life. Um, it allows us to make connections. I mean, storytelling is so important. And I want to talk to you about what is magical thinking for you and how did it play such a big part in this book? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Yeah, I think of it in, in two ways. Um, you know, there, there's things we call magic or, or supernatural or magical realism or, or kind of surreal and strange. And for me, some, the fiction that was always most interesting to me as a kid and still is, is this, the stuff where like the world beneath our world kind of shines out a little bit more and, you know, growing up, it never seemed unusual to me or to my family or to many people in my community for these things that are a bit abnormal um, to be perfectly normal, like being outside and, you know, feeling like the wind in the trees is actually speaking, being, you know, yeah. walking along a river in winter and hearing the ice shift and settle. And, you know, you know that that's just water shifting and settling, but there's, there's something deeper at work. It's like the, you know, the, the, the earth is moaning a little bit in the, in the depth yeah. of winter to let you know it's, it's still there. It'll wake up soon. So having come from a family where kind of the magical elements of the natural world seem pretty normal. Um, I wanted to, to bring that to life in the fiction. So there's that kind of magic that informs our world. And we could say maybe as, you know, another world under our world, that's coming to the surface at times. And then there's magical thinking. And one of the, there's imaginative thinking, and then there's the magical thing that can be damaging or dangerous. And that's something that we see in the book as well. Um, yeah. You know, Arno kind of gets obsessed with these flights of fancy and he, um, you know, every, anything seems possible at times. He, he builds, you know, him and Fallon have built this house in the river and they're kind of struggling and they have a, a new baby and Arno builds his first boat and, you know, he, um, he refuses payment for the first yeah. boat. And, you know, he says, well, doing it is love enough. It's what matters. And <laughs> Alan is, is furious. Like, that's not being grounded in reality, Arno. And um, she, Fallon is a storyteller and there's a line in the book early on where she's talking about how she thinks like, you know, if you look closely enough at a story, any story, you can see the entire history of human history unfolding. And she deeply mm -hmm. believes that. Yeah. And she also knows that part of that history is one of men who kind of fall into patterns of magical thinking of hubris um, and just, just these, these tropes of being bigger than the world, knowing how dangerous they are and knowing that like they've, 
you know, cost many women throughout history their lives. So Fallon is very aware of that. And yet she's totally in love with Arno. So she's kind of at odds with, you know, I, I love this person, but he's such a sheer blend of like masculinity and magic looking sometimes. I know how dangerous that is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've always thought it was interesting how, you know, there's a, there's a da- more dangerous side to magical thinking. And, um, you know, when, when you stop living in reality, you can do awful things. And that's part of what happens to Arno and Lyman in the book as their Absolutely. particular conflict grows. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, Penobscot and the language. There's, mm. there's some sections in the book where you actually use the, the, the language. And I, I wanted so much to be able to hear it spoken. Oh, it's a beautiful language, yeah. And as it turns out, you have a clip, an audio from the audiobook. I do. Play for us. I have a clip from the audiobook, and I would love to play it. Um, just to set it up briefly here, um, very early on in the book, there's a, a paper mill that's on the eve of, it's potentially reopening. New, It's been closed. It's, been, it's gone bankrupt, and new investors have come. Um, you know, shortly before it possibly reopens, it burns to the ground. Um, it becomes quickly apparent it's an act of arson. The community's trying to figure out, well, what happened to this mill? I mean, it's it's a necessary evil in so many ways, and we've lived with it, and it's been shut down, and we, we don't want it necessarily to come back and continue to harm the land, but we need we need industry, we need jobs. So after it, it burns down, a letter is sent to the Lowering Days, which is the newspaper that Fallon runs. And in this letter... Um, the person who set the fire, her name is Molly Greenwind. She's, she doesn't identify herself, but she claims the act and why she did it. So, you know, she's taking agency for the fire. Um, the audio clip is read by a woman named Nicole Altivator, who is a Penobscot speaker and a member of the Penobscot oh. Nation. And she was one of two people who worked with me on the language in the book um, and one of two narrators for the audiobook. So that's a lot of setup, but um, I'm going to play this clip. It's about a minute and a half, and you will get to hear uh, Molly's letter and Nicole's voice and the Penobscot language out loud. Um, Wonderful. It is a gorgeous language. So I'll mute my video while it's playing. Dear readers, this paper is run by a white lady, but she's a white lady who cares. Her heart is in the right place. She gives us the space to be seen and heard. Will you, Winnie? This paper has also shown it cares about truth for everyone, whether human, white, Penobscot, mountain, tree, river, or air. So this paper gets the truth. Ganudaman, Wazel Mo Nazibo, Wazel Mo Thuak, Ach Nadonabamuk, the fire I started was meant for the mill only, not to hurt anyone else. I acted alone. To the mill? This is for the river who you harmed, my people who you poisoned, and all the men and women who had to make themselves into machines to keep you alive. I think it's good you're gone. Some things have to stay dead so others can come back to life. Hmm. Wow. <clears throat> I, I like how you're 
narrator takes on the voice of what I would have expected Molly to sound like because she's a young girl and all the emotion. Wow. It's really there. Molly's a lot of things. And one of the things she is, is like an angsty teenager, right? Totally. Um, Yeah. And Nicole did a wonderful job of just channeling Molly. Like when I heard the letter, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) There she is. Talk about your research and writing that letter and understanding the language and and the people. Yeah, for sure. I imagine you got a lot of help. I did get a lot of help. So absolutely. I mean, I am, like I said, I I grew up in Penobscot territory, but I am not Penobscot. I'm I'm non-Indigenous. So, you know, I I grew up with a lot of awareness of the culture. I grew up with, you know, Penobscot people in my life just by way of where I lived. But, um, you know, I'm also aware of the fact that, you know, there's this long history, right, of non-Indigenous writers writing about Indigenous cultures. So me, like I, to tell the story of the Penobscot Valley, I I needed to have Penobscot culture and Penobscot characters. And one of the things that we haven't seen enough in fiction coming out of Maine, I think is, you know, a a portrait of its cultural diversity. Cause it is, it is a much diverser place than a lot of people think. Um, And indigenous culture is very alive and strong here. Mm -hmm. So I knew what I wanted to say, part of that, story of, you know, having Penobscot in the, in the, in the book um, was having the language itself. Um, so I knew what I wanted to say in Penobscot, but I had to figure out how to say it. Um, <laughs> that, that became the trick. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and there, you know, there are, there are lots of texts to turn to. There's, there's plenty of, of research. There's plenty of Penobscot tales in Penobscot language in, in bilingual texts. There's also a Penobscot dictionary now, but none of that takes into the, the context of actual speech. So I, I worked with two linguists um, who are Penobscot Nation members. Um, they both are language teachers on the reservation. Um, so yeah. that, that was, and they were just super generous in, in bringing me into their language and their culture and helping me get it right. Um, and the, the other person I worked with was a non-Indigenous scholar. He is a, a you know a linguist at USM, the University of Southern Maine, and he was instrumental in helping the tribe put together its its first written dictionary. So he's been working. Oh wow! A long time. So I had these like three cultural kind of allies helping me, and it was such a rewarding experience. Oh, um, I'm sure. And I. I I'm not going to mention them by names because I don't know if they want to be mentioned, but they're all in the acknowledgements of the book. So if, if anybody wants to learn more about, you know, Penobscot language revitalization efforts that are going on, like these three people are right at the center of it. This is happening all over the country and it's so important. I, I grew up near a, a reservation up in northeastern Washington near Canada yeah. myself. <clears throat> the Kaniksu people, which means friendly people. And I was so taken by how the people were portrayed and how important it is that we pay attention, Um, not just the revitalization of the land, but how the land affects us as humans, as people, and and how it's our job to be stewards. And I I felt like that was so well done. Um, So so thank you. Yeah. there's one more thing. I want to talk about you a little bit as a writer. I, I'm curious. I think we have time for maybe two more questions. So my first question is, do you have a process, a writing process or a ritual that you follow to get into your head and write other than vacuuming? Yeah, vacuuming is always, always. <laughs> so one of the, 
I, I do have rituals and, and processes, and sometimes I feel like I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm not as aware of them as I think I am, then I reflect and I'm able to kind of put them together. But one thing I always find is that, you know, for me, a lot of the questions that are under, you know, kind of in the back of my mind, the problems I'm struggling with my writing, they solve, they don't solve themselves, but like the answers present themselves at unexpected times. Like whether if I'm vacuuming and I, maybe I'm walking one of our three dogs, maybe I am, you know, working on fixing something somewhat poorly or with hope well in the house. Um, and I'm like, oh, oh, that answer that question I've been struggling with just kind of hit me. So, so things where you are focused on what you're doing, but you have enough space for your mind to wander are always great, I think, for, for figuring out fictional, fictional problems. But my process is, um, and I write in the mornings. Um, I used to write like late, late at night, but that's changed over time. I'm a morning writer. And I, what I do is I do a lot of note taking by hand at first. I have these Interesting. You know, conversations that will sometimes go for months and months, almost one-sided conversations with myself that I carry out in notebooks, you know, well, what if, what if Arno, instead of being somebody who served his served in the war and was honorably discharged, what if he's a deserter? How does, how does that change? I mean, if he loses favor in his community, what might he do to, gain favor again. So I kind of open, answer these open-ended questions. And once I think I have an idea of the chapter or scene that I'm approaching with these questions, I, I usually write it out longhand pretty quickly. Um, hmm. And then I, I type them up, um, rewriting them entirely. So it's like the first revision. So I'm a big fan of like going really slowly at first hmm. and then going really, really fast and trying to get drafts of scenes or chapters. That's why the longhand. Yeah, that that's why the longhand, um, you know, it, it, I can actually write faster than I can type, which is hard to do nowadays. Um, and sometimes when I write in longhand, it's just, you know, it's just a scribble. I can't even read my own handwriting, but <laughs> know what's yeah. there. I, you know, I've yeah. put it down. Yeah. You can it. make it out. Yeah. I've, I've heard that there's a, something that happens with our brain. And when we write longhand, when our brain connects to our hand, longhand, something happens that, that creates a different type of writing. So that makes sense to me. Like journaling is really important that you, when you journal, that you actually write with a pen in your hand as opposed to, it's different when you're typing on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that's going to be true for you know, younger generations coming up who don't even use pens, but we'll mm -hmm. find out. Well, and I used to computer <laughs> when I was writing short stories, but when I started writing a novel, I found myself going back to writing longhand. And I think interesting having a book that's yeah. very sensory in many ways. I wanted a more mm -hmm. experience, and you yeah. know, about novel writing, it's it's such a long, slow process. You know, it it kind of calls for a slower, you know, older style of writing for me at least. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, it was interesting that the longer the work got, the more I wanted to write my hand. And I think there's a reason. <laughs> there's definitely a reason. Yeah, I can imagine. On your website, I'm going to read to you something from your website. <clears throat> and I apologize to my voice to everyone. Um, I'm sort of losing it, but we're going to get through this. I came to see that a deep sense of rootedness is a privilege. It's not a reality known to all American lives and families. And while fiction is primarily an act of imagination, it can hold echoes of all the people I've known in these towns and perhaps some I carry with me but have never met. Genetic memory, after all, is a fascinating thing for a writer to consider. This really resonated with me, Gregory. I read that like again and again, and I was like, yes, wow. this idea of rootedness and that the, the privilege that it holds and then like sinking into the weight of that and this idea of genetic memory. Can you talk more about when you were thinking, what you were thinking when you wrote that? 
I can, yeah. I um, it resonates with me too, and it it it, it <laughs> has been a long time. I, I remember being younger, and um, I didn't like where I lived, and my family felt stuck, and I I was just I was pretty unhappy as 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 a, as a you know a middle schooler and a, and a, and a teenager. I, I resented where I was, and I wanted to get the heck out of Maine, and my family just seemed like they'd been there forever. Everybody was stuck. And then as I got older, I realized that they weren't stuck. They were choosing to stay. And that's kind mm. of the story of my family. Like my, my dad's side of the family stayed very intact in Waldo County, Maine. And my mom's family stayed very intact in Penobscot County. And it was when I left Maine for, and I moved away for 12 years for college and grad school. And, you know, when I was away, I started to see how silly I had been in my thinking about this. Um, People chose to say people chose to build their life there. They weren't stuck in my resentment. It was just me not understanding like the depth of connection to place and also me pushing back against that. Like I, I felt it in myself, but I wanted to, to get away for a while. So mm-hmm. once I kind of got that distance and that, that lens, everything changed. And I found that, you know, when I embraced more fully the history of where I was from and where my family was from, you know, fiction started coming up um, much more powerfully. And I have to wonder sometimes, you know, there, there are characters that I just sit down and outline and create, and then there are characters that just emerge from nowhere. And I, mm. I have no idea where they, where they come from. They kind of feel, <laughs> sounds a little strange, but you feel just magical thinking. If that isn't something you're carrying, you know, forward from, from your family's history and in some kind of genetic memory type capacity. Well, and I do think that we like, we hear stories growing up and, and growing up in a place like Penobscot, I can only imagine the stories that you heard and having those being passed down from generation to generation, being so rooted in a place. It, it seems to me that this book could never have been written had you not lived the life that you lived in that place and time. Thank you very right. And yeah, there's something about many people up here in Maine where, um, everything has a story, everything is a myth, everything has layers and layers and layers of history. And, you know, I really appreciate that, especially when we look at, at our country and there are so many people who kind of grew up in, a, in places that aren't really places, you know, they, they don't yeah. have history. And that feeling of displacement um, from, you know, a place in, in the United States where, where one has long family ties and displacement from, you know, origins, whether it's, you know, Europe, you know, it's European origins, that displacement is something that is so present in American lives. Um, and I think it, it causes a lot of the harm and oppressive patterns that we, we put out on others. So to, to feel like I am from a place that has a long history of place and a family and a community that values that um, feels like just a beautiful gift. Well, let me know when any place comes available for sale because I'm moving now. <laughs> um, the Lowering Days, folks. This book is just beautifully written. Um, it whispers to you. It, uh, it's, I loved it. So thank you for writing this book. Write another one. <laughs> Please don't take seven years, but no, that's fine. If you need seven years, I will wait. I will wait. Yeah. <laughs> wait. Oh, go ahead. One more question. I understand your wife makes killer biscuits. She does. What's my, her my, secret? Um, her, her secret is talent. Um, <laughs> I guess I don't have the good biscuit talent. She's also, she's an artist and, and she's, uh, she's a psychotherapist. So she's a very, she's like a polymath. Cool. And um, I think her, her secret is a lot of butter and sourdough. Like those are- <laughs> I knew it. Bits, but- <laughs> 
talent goes a long way in the baking world. I, I or just in baking, it's it's not a talent I have. Yeah, you can't wing baking. No, you, no, no, no. I, I don't question. do measurements in the kitchen. That doesn't work for baking. No, no it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, savory cooking, and you're throwing things in and out. It's like <laughs> baking's yeah. Yeah. much more of a science. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank yeah. you for letting me ask you questions about your book. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. It yeah. was a delight. Thank you for, you know, for the wonderful podcast and supporting writers and voices and, and all of the work mm. that you do. It's, yeah. it's a good thing. It's a great mm-hmm. thing. It's a good thing. Hey, Arlene. Books are good. Okay. Books are good. Arlene is one of our wonderful <laughs> oh, watchers we love Arlene. Yeah. We love Arlene. I don't know if Arlene's still with us or not, but she asked really early on when you did your reading, she asked who does the audio book because your voice was so mesmerizing. And I had to restrain myself to not say, just wait, you're going to hear a little sample. (laughs) (laughs) You should have, you should have said that. So it's like, just wait, Arlene, there's a sample coming. But um, I think I saw in Libro who the gentleman is, is um, David Aaron Baker is who. Yes. David David Aaron Baker is the the primary narrator. And then there are some parts narrated by Nicole, Nicole Altivator, who who, who we listen to. Wonderful job with with the audiobook. Um, I was I was the whole process was kind of mind blowing. You know, being a first time writer and you know, not having worked with you know an actor who does audiobooks, I mean, he read the book like six times, and we we oh. had these long long conversations to get pronunciation details exactly right. And it, it was a hard book to narrate in some ways because he, you know, Nicole reads Penobscot parts, but David also reads Penobscot parts. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I had a Penobscot language consultant work with David <laughs> to get the pronunciation right. And he was so open to having all these voices working with him. Um, it was just really cool. cool. It brings it to life in a beautiful Super way. Cool. It's really yeah. the, the audio book thing is a whole different. I mean, it's almost like doing a whole new book. Um, it's a trip. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Yeah, because it's just, um, yeah, it, it can make or break a book in audio, actually, who the Absolutely. actor is. I mean, I and, and they really are actors. I mean, they are acting they are out actors. the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Harvard Collins, my publisher, was fantastic. They, I mean, they gave me a list of four people and they were all phenomenal. And, you know, they let me choose. Wow. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. felt super included and really just honored by that. Um, and that I, I got a lot of say over the, over you know the narrator. Not everybody does. And it, right. it, like, no, that's it, it's it, true. An audiobook experience. Um, which leads me to my question because I was in the background listening, but I was doing some other things. And Arlene says she is still here. So hi, Arlene. <laughs> hi, Arlene. Um, <laughs> Um, which leads me to my question. And I, I was doing some other things in the background, doing the the links and stuff. Did you guys talk about the title? I don't think you did, did you? No, we didn't. Okay, I got to talk about the title because the titles are always one of my things where it's just like, so was it always The Lowering Days? Yes, so this is the only time I've ever written something where the title came first. Um, Wow. I I had the title before I had the first word of the novel and I just knew it and it just, you know, the, the, the phrase came to me and I'm like, oh, that's that's it. You know, I had some, some characters and some ideas, but I hadn't written anything. No. And it, it stayed with the book and it kind of provided this compass that kind of helped me navigate through it. It sets a certain mood from the outset and um, nice. learning yeah. from the world. And 
Um, it's it's a title that li- the literal and you know meaning of it is it's the the newspaper that Fallon runs is called the Lowering Days. It also has a lot of symbolic meanings in that you know the Lowering Day is the day when a body, um, according to her her mythology and her family, a body is put in the ground. So it gets into funeral rites and burial rites, and it's also the day that a boat is put into the water and launched. So in addition to being a literal newspaper in the book, it's kind of symbolic of a, a day of death and a day of birth. Um, so it just, it was doing a lot of work, right yeah. from the, in a lot of, lot of different ways. It's a fantastic title. And when you talk about not having a lot of control, like in the audio thing, sometimes they, the publishing wants to change the titles too. So was that yeah. ever an issue? No, they, my, my, my publisher was on board with the title right from the start. And I, um, I did have, I did have say over the title. Um, you know, there was a mutual, mutual title agreement. It was in my, in my contract with Harper Collins, but I was so worried about a possible title fight and I never had that because they were like, yeah. Nice. Perfect. Yeah. It just shows it was perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, so they know, they know, I mean, they're, they, they do know, they, know. Yeah. they know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so. fantastic. Okay. And Gregory, we always, you know, like I said, we bring authors here. So, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with this, but what, other author would you like to highlight that you've read either last year or somebody that you want to lift up? There are, um, can I do two that are- You upcoming? can do t- as many as you would like. Yeah, I, I'm going to do two that are upcoming. Um, uh, Ash Davidson has a book coming out in August called Damnation Spring. Um, and Yes. A beautiful novel that was luckily- I, ha- I just got it. I thought you, yeah, that's awesome. I want that, it. <laughs> been a good friend for years and uh it's it's a gorgeous book um another one it's it's not coming out until 2022 but it's a story it's collective link stories called night of the living res and it's by a writer named morgan talty it's coming out with two yeah. books and um oh tin house does some great books beautiful books and morgan lives here in maine as well and he's penobscot so um it's you know that the first it's really like the, the the first book from a penobscot writer about you know Penobscot culture. Um, Wonderful. First, What's the name the, of it again? Night of the Living Res, and it's it's it's. He's a great writer. It's a great book. Um, that one's a ways out, um, but those are. But Ashes is coming out this summer, correct? It's coming out in August. I think it's August eight. So yeah, because I okay. After we're done here, I have to go and do some more work, which is doing the grids to like ask authors, and I know she's on the Simon grid, so I'll have to make sure to ask to bring yeah. her on. Bring her on to Warwick. So Gregory Brown said said we should. Gregory Brown suggested we should have you come to to Warwick's virtual events. (laughs) Well, I think that's about what we have time for tonight. So, um, Jennifer, for viewers out there who may not know of you and where to find you, what's the best place for social media and stuff for you? Okay, so people can listen to this and all of our Warwick's interviews on the premise at the San Diego WritersFestival.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pod Premise, and you can follow me at Jennifer Grace or on my website, JenniferThompson.com. Perfect. Gregory, how about you? Where should we send people? Um, just probably my website is the best place, uh, Gregory Brown.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Gregory.r.brown. Okay, fantastic. Which you will see delicious biscuits. Yes. <laughs> Can I give one more get to book? Eat them. I have one. You have what? Oh, yeah. One more book. Can I give one more? Yes. Because um, the one that's actually out, which is nice, um, yeah. Valentine by Elizabeth. <gasps> which, was that the best book ever? Oh, it was so good. It was, it was, it was so, so good. And it, it, it was, just came out in paperback, I think, last week. And yes. Elizabeth who? 
Wetmore. Oh. The, the title is Valentine. So go, go buy, go buy it now. Buy it at Warwick's, you know, yeah. and then buy Definitely. it when it comes out at Warwick's and buy Morgan's book when it comes out. Set people up for Ooh. Set year. people up. You, you've got your reading list now for the next six months. <laughs> Oh, wait, but I just want to remind everybody, Lowering Days, it's in the comment section, um, warworks.com. If you're watching us on um, YouTube, it, basically everybody, any way there is to get a book, you can get it from Warwick's. Just, <laughs> so, love the book. Local folks. Gregory, it was wonderful hosting you. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Thank you Jennifer, so thank much. You. Okay. Yeah. All right. Diego Writers Festival dot com.